What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Your Buster Scruggs? The West Texas Twit? I assume you meant West Texas Tit. On account of that particular bird's mellifluous warble. Call yourself any damn name you please. I want to see you outside. Red Iron! You know, the film critic's version of an Old West shootout is comparing rankings of Coen Brothers movies. No Miller's country, no Fargo, Fargo. 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 Arizona Fink. I was a little slow there on the draw, I think. <laughs> Who do you think won, huh? I'm giving the edge to you, Josh. All right. Tim Blake Nelson in that clip as the titular gunslinger in the Coen's latest, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which made its debut on Netflix earlier this month. On this week's show, our review of Scruggs, plus thoughts on Creed II and Lee Chong Dong's Burning. All that and more. You're Adam Kempinar, the West Grinnell Grouse. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting and welcome back to us after a couple of weeks away from the show. Josh, good Thanksgiving? Relaxing, actually, believe it or not. No travel for the Larson family. And even though we hosted, it was a small group. It was just Debbie's parents and uh, her sister and a brother-in-law and their little one. So, yeah, it was kind of nice, actually. Went back to Iowa, as usual, two Thanksgivings. As usual, they were both very nice, and I did manage to squeeze in a few movies I saw with the kids. Ralph Breaks the Internet. Not going to go into any detail about that except to say recommended. Recommended by the entire group. I'm definitely pro Ralph Breaks the Internet. John C. Riley, very good. And Sarah Silverman, who I loved so much in the original. I think her voice work in the first one is so good, it's probably even better here. So I do recommend Ralph Breaks the Internet and... I also saw Creed 2. I will share some thoughts on that a bit later in the show. And we both managed to see Lee Chong Dong's Burning, which we will discuss later in the show. Plus, listeners will tell us which director did the best job following up their best picture win. More listeners may need to catch up on 80s era James L. Brooks. But first, we review a movie that most of you have probably already watched more than once, thanks to its availability on Netflix. In fact, let's get into the Ballad of Buster Scruggs with this voicemail from listener Ben Flanagan. Roll Tide. Hi, Adam and Josh. This is Ben Flanagan in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I've watched Buster Scruggs twice now, and it's just the latest example of the Coen brothers as the reigning kings of repeat viewing improvement when the movie was already great. I watched it the first time, and I thought that All Gold Canyon was my favorite chapter. Then I watched it over the next day, and I thought that The Gal Who Got Rattled was. And maybe today it's Meal Ticket. All I know is that Carter Burwell is the quiet MVP, and an owl is the best actor in an amazing ensemble cast. All told, I'm just amazed that these two have basically done whatever they want for 34 years, evidently without much artistic compromise, and it's all led to this eight-part Western about death and inevitability among their best work. I guess it shouldn't surprise me that the Coen brothers delivered one of the best films of 2018 and one of the best of their careers. As great as it is, toss it into my Coen rankings and it's only 11th. That could change overnight or in 10 years. But the fact that these guys have potentially made 10 or more better movies than this is beyond insane. But they are the Coens. And him that waits around for something to overtake the Ballad of Buster Scruggs this year is just a fool for expecting better. Thanks so much. Keep up the great work and roll tight. 
This is indeed a Coen Brothers-friendly show, Adam. The work of Joel and Ethan Coen tends to dominate our film-spotted madness tournaments each year, where listeners vote in an NCAA-style contest, pitting movies and their makers against each other. Fargo won our Best of the 1990s edition. The Coen Brothers themselves won our Best Directors Tournament. When it comes to the two of us, though, it seems as if we equally appreciate the Coens, but maybe from different vantage points. Case in point, in the last 10 years, we've each named a Coen Brothers film as our favorite in a given year. But for you, that was 2013's Inside Lewin Davis. For me, it was 2016's Hail Caesar. If you look at our separate lists on Letterboxd ranking their films or could decipher our opening shootout, our top fives share only two titles in common, Fargo and No Country for Old Men. All of this brings us to the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the Coen's anthology western comprised of six separate tales set on the American frontier. I was quite intrigued when I saw where we each ranked Buster Scruggs on those letterboxed lists. Before I get to that, though, a bit more background on Buster. The opening tale, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, features Tim Blake Nelson as the title character, a singing gunslinger who wears snappy white chaps and tends to shoot up every saloon he enters. He's sort of like a smiley Anton Chigurh. The next tale, Near El Gadones, stars James Franco as a dim-witted bank robber and Stephen Root as a resourceful teller. This is where you yell pan shot at him. Pan shot. Nice. <laughs> Meal Ticket follows the bleakest installment, featuring Liam Neeson as a traveling showman and Harry Melling as his act, an armless, legless man reciting lofty oratory, poetry, famous speeches, Bible passages to frigid frontier crowds. That puts us at the halfway point where we get the cheerier all-gold canyon with Tom Waits as a persistent prospector and the gal who got rattled, a tentative, touching romance between a pioneer woman named Alice, played by Zoe Kazan, and a trail guide named Billy, played by Bill Heck, who showcases some real leading man chops. Did you notice how Kazan pronounces Oregon, Adam? I, I did, actually. I expect the Coens to get many, many emails. <laughs> and then I noticed how Bill Heck said it correctly. <laughs> Things do come to a spooky conclusion with The Mortal Remains, featuring a midnight stagecoach. Saul Rubinek, Tyne Daly, Chelsea Ross, John Joe O'Neill, and Brendan Gleeson are the passengers who may or may not be galloping to their final resting place. So, what did we make of The Ballad of Buster Scruggs in its entirety, Adam? Let's start with the unlikely fact that you and I both ranked it in the same spot on Letterboxd amongst the Coen Brothers filmography, and it's even lower than where listener Ben had it. At 11. We've both got it at a lowly number 15. So I'm curious to hear, is there a particular reason Buster Scruggs fell that far down for you? Or do you essentially think it's pretty great? And that list is mostly a testament, as Ben says, to how damn good the Coens are. I hate to spoil your setup. You had some nice symmetry going there, but within about 24 hours of putting it in the 15th oh my spot gosh, you re on things. Letterboxd, I re-ranked You're it. You're ridiculous. I re-ranked it, and I definitely knew I had to re-rank it after I watched The Ballad of Buster Scruggs for a second time. I actually, right now, Josh, have it at number 12. Okay. I have it at number 12, and it is absolutely a testament to how good the Coen Brothers filmography is, I think, Buster Scruggs, is pretty great. And we will not devolve into breaking down those rankings. I probably have, if I wanted to get really specific, five different tiers of Coen Brothers movies, and that starts with six movies that are just flat-out masterpieces. Six movies that any one of them on any given day I could take from any slot and move into the number one slot. But if I wanted to be a little more general, 
about it, I could simply say that there are two tiers of Coen Brothers movies. Of the 17 I've seen, there's one I haven't seen, and that is The Lady Killers. There are 15 that I think fall on some scale from really, really good to, as I said, masterpiece. And then there's two, just two at the bottom that I don't fully appreciate. And those are Intolerable Cruelty. I know there are some defenders out there of that film. And there are a lot more defenders out there of Burn After Reading, which I'll admit I probably got wrong and just need to see again. I think the two that we really are actually split on the most is The Man Who Wasn't There. You have that ranked a lot higher. And also True Grit. I think both are very good films, but those I know are right up there in that, what, top eight or nine for you, if not higher? Yeah, I like both of those. And also, I really like Intolerable Cruelty. I would say the one that I'm lower on than you is A Serious Man. Yeah. But that's basically how things shake out. So we do have distinct differences when it comes to the Coens. And we might have a distinct difference when it comes to our reads on this film, Buster Scruggs. I think it is an unabashedly bleak, yet oddly hopeful and entertaining meditation on the cones, perennial preoccupations, the folly of human nature, and death. I only know how you feel, Josh, based on your little letterbox blurb, but based on some of your phrasing there, I get the sense that you have a little bit of a different read on this film. Yeah, first off, I really like it as well. So you're absolutely right, as is Ben. These are just, for the most part, really great films. And so there's just going to be some that have to fall more towards the bottom of the list. If I have any reservations about The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which again, I will reiterate, I liked quite a bit, it's not that I do find it to be one of their most nihilistic films, which sounds like we have a disagreement there, and mm-hmm. I'm eager to hear how you find it hopeful. But for me, it, it was extremely nihilistic, bleak, pessimistic, and I'm okay with that. I mean, I would say the same for the most part of No Country, which I have ranked at number two. Maybe Fargo. It's been a long time since I've seen that, but I, I think of it that way. So that's just to say that it's not that I'm against them going in that direction. I think the reservation I have here is that it's also a bit glib in its nihilism. There is a really high body count in this film, and that's maybe not necessarily distinct from their other pictures, but there's corresponding laugh count that goes with a lot of those deaths, which, again, is something that they dabble in here and there. Um, But it strikes me that this is really heavy, especially that opening segment with Tim Blake Nelson. In that direction. And maybe that colors my feeling throughout the film because each of these, though they're all bleak and all I would say pretty hopeless, they do have different tones and tenors to them. Um, But there is a glibness here, especially when it comes to the violence that I think is something I felt a bit wearying maybe in the structure of this as well, um, when that does get repeated, when this hopelessness does get repeated. And there just wasn't a lot of the things that alleviate a lot of their films, even the darker ones, are little hints of mercy or little hints of grace. And I think a lot of times in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, those are held out as red herrings even. When I think of near El Gadonis, the bank robber one with James Franco, it's basically him escaping death repeatedly, but then the very next scene is him being caught in another trap and the rug is pulled out or essentially the hangman's platform is pulled out from him and us at the end. So there, all of these instances of grace or mercy are are just gags. There are other gags to lead eventually to death. And, and this is really a picture... All trails in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs lead to death, essentially. Mm -hmm. All of the characters, the movie seems to believe, deserve that. Um, And there isn't really much 
hope beyond that, hmm. I would say. I, I know there's quibble with the idea that they all deserve it, I, that the cones feel like they There may do. be a few that they take a little more. Uh, and here's where I think we'll get to the fact that this includes maybe one of their most romantic yeah. d- depictions, which does stand out. So you may be right there. But I think for the most part, even the hopefulness that you see, for example, Buster's own ballad mm-hmm. where he's he's bound for glory – He's almost like an angelic rodeo clown there than anyone who's offering anything the movie really believes in. Well, we definitely saw the same film, and I agree there is a certain glibness to it. That glibness, as you pointed out, I think you can find pretty much in all of their films. And in all of their best films, I do always find that balanced by more poignant moments and moments of grace. You said you didn't see enough of them here, or maybe they were red herrings. But grace is actually the same word I used when thinking about this film and reflecting on the moments that resonated with me the most. There's no doubt that there are a lot of cruel twists here, and there is undoubtedly a sense of most of humankind, as we see it depicted in this movie, being base and being totally self-serving. But then you'll get moments, to go back to Algodones and James Franco's character, at the end, you'll get this moment of recognition, this epiphany, which in some ways I know One could make the argument that actually that's yet another of those kind of cruel twists. But for me, the fact that the Coen brothers at all in that moment have that kind of resignation, and I don't mean resignation in a bad way. I mean it in the sense that he understands his fate in that moment and is comfortable with what is about to happen to him. I think that's how it's depicted there in that moment. And then when he does have a moment of recognition and maybe in that moment thinking a little bit about what life could have been for the Coen brothers – To me, Josh, it's about us as audience members. That's where the parable comes in. It's recognizing that it's those moments and those types of people even that we can perhaps find some connection to. And if only we would focus on those aspects and not the most selfish ones, then life maybe wouldn't be so damn hard. So I actually think that's a really powerful moment of grace, and I think there are many more like it. Yeah, I, I can see the reading of that scene. Both times I watched it, for me, it it was actually a joke because the Franco character had gotten – he had experienced mercy so often, he'd gotten cocky. And so he's up there thinking, well – in some unexpected way, I'm going to be saved See, that's again. that's not how I read it. And, and, and that's one of the best lines of the even film. More, his, there's his even more of, of a, a, an emphasis on that in showing the girl in that, oh, and, and whenever that arrives, I'll have this girl as well oh, no. here. And no, instead, he knows it's like, what's going to happen now, now you're really going to get it. I Finally, think he, it's I think coming he completely you. knows what's going to happen to him in that moment. But you might be right. I do read it, I guess, in a more hopeful way. I think the most romantic, as you said, of the six stories, the one that is by far the longest. I think a lot of our fellow cinephiles think it's the best one, which I find a little bit boring, and I'm including myself in that because, of course, it is. It's the one with the most heart. It's the one with the most developed characters, and it is the longest. It's the one that feels most like its own film. It could have been elongated into an entire feature, perhaps, as opposed to the other ones that really do feel the girl who got rattled, like sections of a short story, right? The girl who got rattled with Kazan and Bill Heck. And even we're not going to get into it too much. I can, again, argue against myself here. But I will say that even the fate of Kazan's character, Alice, I find somehow both incredibly sad and elegant in a way. There's a peacefulness to it. My sense of hope really is more of a feeling watching this film, but I'll point to another moment like the conversation she has with Billy Knapp. Oh, it's lovely. 
there are multiple lovely conversations, but I'm thinking of the one where they realize that they could actually be of comfort to each other. I believe certainty regarding that which we can see and touch, it is seldom justified, if ever, down the ages from our remote past what certainty survive. And yet we hurry to fashion new ones on their comfort. Certainty. <laughs> it is the easy path. Just as you said. Straight is the gate. And narrow the way. Indeed. I think in some ways, even if the characters don't really know it, that's all most of these characters are seeking is that sense of comfort, this idea that we are all alone in this chaotic universe. But it's moments of recognition like that one, like the one we talked about with James Franco, where you realize it doesn't necessarily have to be that way or it doesn't have to be that bad. I'll point to another moment of grace, I think, or of hope in the film. And it comes at the very end. In fact, it is the closing moment of this film, The Mortal Remains. We have Saul Rubinek's character. And all I'll say about it is he is on the precipice of a doorway. He has to make a choice in that moment. And we could quibble about whether or not he really has a choice to make at all. But I think it's portrayed that way. And despite his trepidation and despite his fear, very justifiable trepidation and fear, he ultimately does go inside. And I think that is the same choice we all have to make about life and about death. And the fact that the movie ends on that note signals to me that the Coen brothers do have that sense of grace, have that sense of thoughtfulness, I guess, that does supersede the glibness. Well, there's certainly an acceptance in that scene. Yeah, that, that, is, that is correct. He accepts his fate. I guess my question would be, what is that fate? I mean, this is a very different vision of the afterlife than what we see in the Buster Scruggs segment, which is bright and heavenly and cheery. I think also jokey. I don't know that they believe in that either. But here they're entering this hotel that is dark and gloomy. It's, it's smoky in mm -hmm. the parlor. The only color at all is the red carpet leading up these stairs, which, yes, there's light at the top, but I don't think that's heading to heaven considering there are two characters dragging the corpse of a man who was just killed up it. I mean, this, this is we don't to know. me, this is a depiction of judgment. And what has happened in that carriage ride is each of those three passengers have been determined unworthy in different ways, unworthy of Aren't being. Aren't we all? Exactly. That is the point. So are they given any moments of grace? Well, if you want to read him saying, all right, I'll go into this hellish hotel as grace, I guess you can. For me, it read very differently. Well, now, Josh, let me counter real quick with the idea that they literally voice in that opening segment, Buster Scruggs, and seems to me like something they put in there almost as a meta element to – directly comment on people like you who are going to read this movie that way. And that's the moment when I think Buster Scruggs shows the wanted sign. Yeah. And he's labeled as the misanthrope. Yep. And he says, I don't hate my fellow man. That's just the human material. The human material. You can see that as nihilistic. I see that as ultimately hopeful because there I isn't agree. that hate there. There isn't that hate. There is that acceptance of who we all are. And if only we can find more of those types of moments I spoke of, wouldn't we all be even better off? I completely agree. Buster Scrubs is the most hopeful 
grace-filled person in this picture. He's also the one with the highest body count sure. who has no regard, despite what he says, for the value of human life. Okay, he has a code. they fire first mostly exactly. as long as they, they fire first. But, uh, you know, he doesn't seem too bothered if if they don't. And again, I'll go back to, you know, just the way, sort of the cartoonish way, um, his hopefulness is depicted, I feel, is is part of the gag as well. To jump back, though, to the gal who got rattled, it is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Not my favorite if we want to talk favorites. I'll get to that next. Um, but it is really very, I'm shocked. very good. Um, I thought and for sure it would be. can you think of another? I, I didn't sit down and, and go through every title, but another Coen Brothers movie that felt this romantic. Maybe Fargo. Maybe the couple. It's a very different type of romance. <laughs> Margin it's a, norm. Yeah, yeah. It's a very domestic contented, but but I find that romantic. And Absolutely. that's the only other one that comes to mind. Maybe there's something where, you know, we're both missing Insolable in the cruelty moment, is but, not romantic. Well, it's, it's been a while. It's a, little, it's a little bit different. But man, did this thing work in that way. You know, for filmmakers who aren't known for that quality. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that you have to give to, to Bill Heck, um, who I was unfamiliar Cowboy with. Cowboy Keanu Reeves. My goodness. I mean... It, this guy, just sort of the chivalry, but the reticence he also brings to that chivalry. And that's a guy the movie likes. Mm-hmm. OK, this is a guy that the movie does think deserves to live. No, I think it likes another character, another man in that piece even more. Uh, Granger. I think Granger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you're probably I think Mr. right. Arthur. Yeah. I, yeah, that's that's probably fair. Um, but as far as, you know, where that short segment ends up. I think I do disagree with you in terms of peacefulness. For me, I'll just say from a certain point on, I just kept thinking, when is the cholera coming? When is the cholera coming? (laughs) And for those who haven't seen it, that's not a spoiler. That's not what happens. No. But it's an indication of me fearing. Or it happens earlier. It, it happens earlier. So but it, so I'm fearing like that's what's that's been the pattern all along. Is this going to be where they're finally going to break it. And instead of making that choice, I would say it makes the most cruel and savage turn towards maybe, I wouldn't say judgment in this instance. It's just meaninglessness, hmm. okay, which is nihilism. Um, there isn't judgment here, but the way that ends to me is absolute meaninglessness. Now, I want to back up and, and say, like, individually, I am not holding all of these choices or my interpretations against the film. I think the reason, to go back to the rankings, it's a little bit lower, is, again, the accumulation of them and how that affected my experience of it overall. So my favorite is actually Meal Ticket with Liam Neeson and Harry Mellon. Yeah, it's between that and is it? Okay, the good. girl got rattled for and, me. And Harry Mellon, we, we just got to point out, Dudley Dursley. From the Harry Potter films. Right. It wasn't until I was looking at the credits and, and so looked good. up. A, yeah, he is. Did you I vote for him in Sam's poll on Twitter? Yes. Yeah, I think he's he we is didn't win. the best performance in this film. And what's amazing about it is he gives these very theatrical oratories, right? Which are captivating. They're mm-hmm. riveting. He's a, he's a show person. But there's also a part of, especially me, who is suspicious of showy performances where I'm like, okay, but for someone that talented and a theatrical person, it's probably easy. I met a traveler in an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped! on these lifeless things. 
the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. But Melling goes that way, and then he goes the extreme opposite, because off the stage, I don't think he has a line of dialogue. No, he doesn't. It's all in his face as he is communicating how he feels about this Darwinian agreement he is stuck in with Liam Neeson's showman. I mean, this is like they need each other to survive, and that's all there is to it. And when those scales get tipped Mm -hmm. just a little bit— I don't even think Buster Scruggs would be happy with how this one goes out, as hopeful as he is with how this story ends. Now, you might ask, okay, well, if I'm looking for hope in this movie, why is this my favorite yeah, one? Yeah, because I think it's the most nihilistic. It is the bleakest. It's the grimmest it's the most, by far. <laughs> so they're just – they're embracing it there, right? Like full-hearted embracing it and saying what I think some of their best films have also said is what the hell is going on? What's wrong with people? Who cares? It's all meaningless. Yeah. And here, this one, it's the one that haunted me, that stuck with me. And I will say, too, you know, one of my other slight reservations is a little bit more of a technical one. Um, but this is their first film with digital cinematography. Mm-hmm. Bruno Delbanel, uh, they're working with here. And a lot of it was, you know, none of it, what I say, is is inferior. But it does have sort of a, a clear, crisp, pristine, sometimes cartoonish tenor to it. And in Meal Ticket, largely because of the setting, these are wintry mountain roads or that stage, which Mm -hmm. is lit by candles. It has a little bit more texture and a little more richness to it visually as well. So that probably helps bump it to the top for me. So thematically, performances and and the aesthetics there, that, that's why that one was my favorite. I think yeah. it's really something. No, I agree with all of those reasons. And also just because it was the one I was most eager to watch again and really to watch Harry Melling and that journey that his character goes on. And it's easy, I think, maybe and misguided to see it as a passive performance because it's certainly not very big. He has no arms and legs, which I don't know if you pointed that out or not. But yes. Yeah. yeah. I so he, I thought that was necessary to mention. <laughs> there you go. OK. I missed that part. But he doesn't have much in the way of physicality. He obviously doesn't use his voice except when he is orating from the stage. But, man, when you watch the series of emotions that he goes through moment to moment, it is all in his face and it is all in his eyes. And I think it's really remarkable. There's also in that one, one of my favorite little Coen Brothers touches that I didn't notice until the second time. And the movie is full of these kind of idiosyncrasies. One of them that's more blatant would be like when Buster walks into that first saloon and pats the dust off of his chest, and then it leaves the silhouette of the dust as he walks by. Those are the kind of things that you expect, those kind of little bits of humor that you expect from the Coen brothers. But there is a moment when we see, as part of this Darwinian arrangement, of course, Liam Neeson's impresario character has to not only feed him, but he has to help him go to the bathroom. And... (laughs) To talk about how sort of symbiotic this relationship is, whether they want it that way or not, there's a moment when the artist is clearly finishing up that act. And we actually see Liam Neeson tap him a couple times on his chest as if he's the one doing the tapping. You know, he is effectively Mm -hmm. doing the tapping in that moment. So there are those little things like that, those little details that only the Coen brothers would choose to show us. You just mentioned another one that ties into this idea of grace and mercy and the fact that there's none here. When he's feeding him those beans, do you notice how he he doesn't doesn't wait. wait for it to be cool? 
And it's oh, that's and, just and like a killer. Yeah, little he's actually kind of unhappy with him that that he's making him wait. Liam Neeson's character is yes. that he's making him wait to choke that down. Yes. You're right. Absolutely notice that. And while we're talking about moments that we love, I do want to single out a few lines and also talk about one of the things that we get from the Coen brothers. It's got to be one of their most quotable films, right? It has to be. Yeah. And that other thing we get from them is we've already said it, but really great performances, really nuanced, idiosyncratic performances that somehow never feel like the characters are doing anything just for show. And some of those moments, for example, would be going back to the girl who got rattled when Billy Knapp surprises her with a question. Zoe Kazan's O, I think she says it maybe two or three times, but it's the most elongated O you've ever heard. And just to take that one word on the page and turn it into that moment of just being completely overwhelmed and shocked that she does is really something. And I think we haven't touched on yet. Tom Waits is the prospector. So good. The one about digging for gold, all gold Canyon. When he says after... A confrontation he has. It didn't hit nothing important. Yeah. The way he says that oh, line yeah. and everything he says really is gold in its own way, including all of the grunts. Every little noise that he makes is so perfect. But that line delivery, the fact that he says it a couple times, it's his little bit of revenge on someone who at that point isn't even listening to him pointing out that it didn't hit nothing important. I love moments like that. And yes, pan shot is maybe the single funniest line. Also, it's got to be a little bit of a meta joke, too, right? As in a pan shot. It's not a probably, panning shot, knowing but the it's Coens, probably, probably a little bit of a reference to filmmaking. There I think are a lot there of is meta one. elements I think actually there film. is one in that segment, right? Franco's perspective to his horse or something Oh, I'm sure maybe like there that. is. Yeah, that yeah. particular shot yeah. of Stephen Root running at him is oh, not. Oh, not, no. But it seems like a reference to filmmaking in a movie that is filled with a lot of commentary, I think, on artistry and framing different stories. There's actually, I think, a parallel. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks it's a parallel in The Girl Who Got Rattled to the pan shot moment. And that's when two people are being attacked, one of them, Mr. Arthur, and the attacker gets caught on a prairie dog hole and he yells out, dog hole. Mm-hmm. Which I had <laughs> no idea like what that. he was talking yeah, about at first. Dog hole. The it's second the, or third time. Yeah. yeah, it's the prairie dogs. The one Sam, the other one, including Pan Shot, that Sam pointed out in our newsletter this week, how high can a bird count anyway, has to be one of the top three lines in this movie from Tom Waits's Prospector. And one last one that's just that great moment of performance, taking three words and making it something magical. Brendan Gleeson as one of the... Mm harvesters of souls in the mortal remains when his partner says i usually distract them with a story there it is again more about storytelling i distract them with a story and then he thumps them and he says i can thump yep and just the the way he relishes saying those three words that's a testament to gleason but it's a testament to the writing and to the types of performances the cone brothers elicit so let's bring up Speaking of Gleason, another motif that runs through this film that I greatly appreciated, and that's the use of music. Gleason sings an Irish traditional, The Unfortunate Lad, that he just gives this, um, it's a beautiful, but also a very defeatist lilt, which I think is appropriate for that segment um, when he sings. And Buster Scruggs' own ballad, well, actually, it's not the opening one that I like so much. The one I really like, which is written by David Rawlings and Gillian Welch, is When a Cowboy Trades His Spurs for Wings. It's a duet that he's singing with uh, another gunslinger played by Willie Watson. So you have those bookended, very interestingly 
thematically connected songs as well, looking towards a different vision of um, dying and death in the afterlife. The Unfortunate Lad is from the perspective of a guy who's about to die. Um, so I think that kind of makes a nice bookend there thematically. But throughout this movie, you'll have instances of song, a lot of traditionals, some new stuff written for uh, the film that is just a really lovely motif going through. And speaking of, you know, the lines of dialogue and the performances, also the lines, the writing, the screenwriting here by the Coens, I want to point out and bring us full circle maybe to this question of um, hopefulness or nihilism. And I'll say there is a hopeful moment for me in here, and it is a long speech. It's not a song, but it's a speech. It's the one that takes place during a conversation between Alice and Billy, and it's about certainty where – Yeah, that's it. Billy mentions That's the moment of her, grace I was thinking yeah, of too when where, they talk about finding comfort is because they see the connection with each other in that exact moment. And in that particular instance, he's praising her for not being set in her ways, for not being yes. as stodged as her brother was. And he says this, uncertainty, that is appropriate for matters of this world. Only regarding the next do we vouchsafe certainty. And to me, that's that's a completely sincere moment mm-hmm. in the film. It's quite different to me from what Buster is singing about when he says he's glory bound uh, because it holds it holds both things that intention that the best Coen Brothers films do this utter despair at the world. But yet this observation, belief, recognition that for some reason there are moments of grace as Mm -hmm. well. And in that little campfire conversation, uh, it does capture what the Coens can do at their best. Yeah. And it captures what almost all of their films do in some way deal with, which is that notion of the uncertainty of this world. I feel like we could spend a lot more time on this movie really just going through some of our favorite moments, whether lines or performances or camera choices in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. But instead, we will stop there and encourage anyone to see it if they haven't already. It is currently streaming on Netflix, as well as playing on a few screens in limited release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. So what have we been doing while on break from the show? Watching movies, of course. Up next are reviews of Creed II and Lee Chung-dong's Burning, along with results of the film spotting poll. We asked, what's the best follow-up to a Best Picture win since 1970? Stay with us. Let me tell you, buddy, there's a faster gun Coming over yonder when tomorrow comes Let me tell you, buddy and it won't be long Till you find yourself singing your last cowboy song Yippee-ki-yi-yi when the roundup ends Yippee-ki-yi-yi and the campfire dims Yippee-ki-yi-yi he shouts and he sings When a cow his spurs for wings When they're at my This week's show is supported by film spotting listeners like a new donor, Liam, who is from Perth, Australia. He's also a new listener. I found your A Star is Born episode last month, and I've been hooked ever since. Thank you, Adam, Josh, and the production team that make the show go. This won't be my last donation. Was it my singing of Shallow or all my talking about how hot Bradley Cooper is? Singing. 
Had okay. to be the same. Yeah, I'm sure. We also got a gold level donation from E. Kim Locke in Portland. Thank you to everyone who supports the show. Dearest Queen, you are mad. Giving me a palace. It is a monstrous extravagance, Mrs. Molly. We are at war. We won. Oh, it is not over. We must continue. Oh. Oh, I did not know that. Olivia Coleman and Rachel Weiss in the trailer for The Favorite. Emma Stone also in that period black comedy from director Yorgos Lanthimos. His movies, Josh, they used to only exist as rumor here on the show. Sometimes we thought they were coming out and they would come out two years later. In this case, we are getting our second Lanthimos film in as many years. The Killing of a Sacred Deer came out last year. I still haven't seen it. Yeah, and that one I was kind of mixed on, but... The Lobster on my top 10 of yeah. that year. Dog Tooth, Dog Tooth. We both love. A Golden Brick winner here so on the show. We're big fans. Can't wait to see this one. Yeah, really excited about the favorite. It opens in limited release this weekend, including here in Chicago. On next week's show, we are planning to have a review of the favorite, along with a review of the new Vox Lux with Natalie Portman as an eccentric pop singer. That one is scheduled to open next weekend in limited release. Yes, the Mad Rush to see everything is upon us. We are at the end of November, and really, we're just a couple weeks away from recording our top 10 films of 2018 show, and the dread has set in. We really shouldn't even be here. We should just be home watching movies. Can we do that? Would everyone forgive us if we just took like three weeks off and watch movies instead? Maybe we should try to get away with it. We did share this news on social media. Not only are we preparing for that big top 10 Films of 2018 two part show, but we are prepping for Film Spotting's 2018 Rap Party Live. After a year off, we are back with our Rap Party. It is our first live show since January 2017, where we looked back on the year in cinema that was 2016. The date is Friday, January 11th at 7 30 p.m. We are back at the wonderful Logan Center for the Arts. It is on Chicago's South Side, actually at the University of Chicago campus. And tickets are on sale now, as they say. I guess we needed a year to recover from that rap party. It was it was so big. It yeah, was so intense. good. I'm glad we're welcome back to the Logan Center. I mean, that's a classy place. It's a nice setup. Really nice. Nicer than we deserve. So, Probably. But I'm happy to be back there. And we love seeing our listeners at these live shows. And we are often hanging out beforehand, maybe having a drink or two. So if you want to come mill around with us and listen to us talk a little bit more, talk about the year in film, we're going to do that. And we're going to have some great special guests as well, like we always do at this event. Tasha Robinson, Michael Phillips, Angelica Bastian, all three of them you're familiar with. They've all been co-hosts on the show. It will be great to have them as part of this live show. Yes. And if somehow you're not familiar with our rap party and the shenanigans that go on, we do share our favorite scenes. We have five categories. We're going to share our favorite opening scene, our funniest moment, our most moving moment. We also have the music moment, many options to choose from, from the Ballad of Buster Scruggs and the scene of the year. You will hear the scene of the year pick from us and all of our guests. And the Logan has a great, huge screen. So we actually play each of these. So we get some some video in there as well to mix things up. We'll play Massacre Theater. We give the Golden Brick Award at the live show. We do. So there's a lot going on. If it sounds like a fun time to you, and we hope it does, you can find information about the event and buy your tickets online at filmspotting.net. There is a link right at the top of the page or click on events at filmspotting.net. Another link for you, wbez.org slash events. We did want to take a moment to touch on the sad news that 
came over the Thanksgiving weekend. They say that these things happen in threes, and they certainly did hear two directors of note passing away, Nicholas Rogue and Bernardo Bertolucci. Rogue was 90, Bertolucci 77, and actor and magician Ricky Jay also passed away. He was 70, or it seems 72, depending on the source. And I love the fact that Ricky Jay's age is apparently a mystery that seems appropriate for him. Nicholas Rogue, of course, the director of the 1973 film Don't Look Now with Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie, a film that mixes horror and psychological drama to potent effect. And really, Mark Harris, as he often does on Twitter, really nailed it for me. Reflecting on Nicholas Rogue, he said, 47 years later, when you ask people for the hottest sex scene in movies and the scariest moment in movies, Don't Look Now will still make both lists. And in fact, way back on episode 198 of this show, the famous love scene between Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie in Don't Look Now was my number one love scene. And then on episode 233, one of my top five scariest scenes in all of cinema, in fact, my number five came from Don't Look Now. So I'm certainly in agreement there with Mark Harris. And Don't Look Now made another recent top five on episode 639. We did our top five movies about grief, that one making the cut there for me. And our friends at The Next Picture Show recently paired Don't Look Now with Hereditary, which remains on my to-see list for this year. Oh, you got to get to it. I know I have to. I have about two weeks and it will get done. Rogue, also the director of 1976's The Man Who Fell to Earth with David Bowie. And this was well before my time, Adam, but I believe that was part of the 1970s sci-fi marathon you guys did back in 2008. I'm familiar with Rogue from the 1990 Roald Dahl adaptation, The Witches. As a matter of fact, that one made a list of mine recently. Top five overlooked 1990s movies. Other notable films from Rogue include Walkabout and Performance. That one stars Mick Jagger. Bertolucci, of course, the director of The Last Tango in Paris, 1900, The Dreamers, and really one of my favorite films. I love The Conformist and recommend anyone see it if they haven't had the chance. He did win Best Picture and Best Director for The Last Emperor. Last Emperor, one of those I remember going to as a kid and feeling like I was seeing a real grown-up movie. I don't know how old I would have been at that point, but just being kind of overwhelmed by it. And of course, his most notorious film, probably Last Tango Mm -hmm. in Paris, one I haven't seen in many years, probably remember being wowed by Brando's performance in that one. But I have a feeling uh, I was a little skeptical of it as a male fantasy at the time, and I'm guessing it might look more like that today even. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but Stephanie Zaharek wrote an article that actually she tweeted about just today as we're recording this, sort of reckoning with that infamous yeah, sex it's, it's scene a really good in article. the film. You should check it out. Her response to that film and how she feels about it now because she is such an admirer of the movie. We will link to that in our show notes at filmspotting.net if you are curious. Ricky Jay is someone I'm familiar with going back to not just the Paul Thomas Anderson movies. He, of course, was in Magnolia and he's the cinematographer in Boogie Nights, but David Mamet, longtime friend and collaborator with Mamet. So you see Ricky Jay in House of Games and Things Change and Homicide Heist. I think he's in The Spanish Prisoner and maybe one or two others. He is a magician who specialized in close-up tricks and illusions, specifically with cards. And another thing I'm going to link to in the show notes, I happened to catch a tweet from Ira Glass about Ricky Jay, and he linked to an American Masters profile of Jay. And all I will say about it is watching it, 
this incredible story that Ira said was incredible. I got goosebumps just hearing this reporter from The Guardian retell this moment where she went to interview Ricky Jay to do a piece about him while he was also filming this American Master special. And he decided that he wanted to get off the set, take her out to lunch, and they would do this interview. And he's talking about what they were shooting that day and the story he was telling and he pulls off something that, again, just hearing her express it was so wondrous and amazing that I think it's worth everybody's five minutes or so if they haven't already seen this bit. So, again, we will link to that in the show notes for this episode at filmspotting.net. Filmspotting.net is where you can listen to past episodes of the show, including the last one that we aired before our little holiday break. We reviewed Steve McQueen's Widows and Paul Dano's Wildlife. We also did play... Massacre Theater. That's where we perform a scene from a well-known film, and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt if you haven't gotten around to listening to what was maybe, Josh, your greatest performance ever. Hmm. Here's a little of what you missed. <laughs> You're crazy! I can't speak about what happened five years ago, because I didn't know Petunia then, but I'll be damned if I see how you got within a mile of her, unless you brought the groceries to the back door. But all the rest of that is a goddamn lie. Petunia loved me when she married me and she loves me now. No, no. She does! I don't know. I, I think I might have been a little big. Yeah. <laughs> so is the actor maybe, in that maybe scene. I should have reined it in a little bit. No, it made for Massacre Theater gold. Despite that gold, this is one of the lowest entered Massacre Theaters of all time. Oh, come on. I literally think we have about 14 entries so far. So That's... I don't know where you threw people off the track. Maybe... People just haven't it's seen this film. It's shocking to me. I, I thought that Massacre Theater was something people, especially with a holiday gathering, that they played out loud for the family. Uh-huh. And it's like a game. It's like one of the games you play with the family in uh-huh. the afternoon. Everyone tries to guess, but apparently totally people true. aren't doing it that way. <laughs> apparently not. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, December 3rd. Seven seven three. Heard if you fill me in a little bit once in a while, did you ever think of that? It has nothing to do with me and even less to do with you. It's curiosity. Did you ever hear of that? It's just goddamn human nature. Listen, if there's one surefire rule that I have learned in this business is that I don't know anything about human nature. I don't know anything about curiosity. I don't, that's not part of what I do. What I, this is my business. And when I'm... I'll see you later. It is time for polls. That was John Cazale and Gene Hackman in 1974's The Conversation. Just a little masterpiece that Francis Ford Coppola squeezed in between Best Picture wins for Godfather 1 and 2. A couple weeks back, we asked you, what is the best follow-up to a Best Picture win since 1970? And if I'm remembering correctly, this poll question was inspired by the release of Widow, Steve McQueen's follow-up to the Best Picture winning 12 Years a Slave, and the upcoming If Beale Street Could Talk from Moon light director Barry Jenkins. So we didn't just make this up completely out of nowhere. We did make up out of nowhere the choices we gave you. In addition to the conversation, The Exorcist, William Friedkin's follow-up to The French Connection, Broadcast News, James L. Brooks' follow-up to Terms of Endearment, The Talented Mr. Ripley, that was what Anthony Minghella directed after The English Patient, Catherine Bigelow did Zero Dark Thirty after The Hurt Locker, and Alejandro Gonzalez and Yari Tu followed up Birdman with the Revenant, we did give you other assuming we missed something obvious and glorious. And apparently we had OK 
options there, Josh, because Other came in dead last with 3%. That's right. Following Other was the talented Mr. Ripley with 6%. Broadcast News got 9%. And then The Revenant, My Vote, received only 10% of the vote. Catherine Bigelow, Zero Dark 30, got 13%. Up the top here, The Exorcist, 24%, but winning was The Conversation. 35% of the vote. So my choice, The Exorcist, faring a little bit better, Josh, than yours, The Revenant. We did note this when we asked the poll, but the one option you absolutely would not have considered was, of course, the one I went with and the same went for your choice of The Revenant. We heard from Andy Mitchell, who bills himself rightfully as the production assistant. The production assistant. Bosses, you two are really going to vote for The Revenant and The Exorcist as if the conversation (laughs) isn't an option? Apparently we did. Well, you couldn't vote for it, Josh. Yeah, it's a blind I, have, spot. I have a good reason for that. I don't know about your reason. I'll I'll decide when I, I love see the film, the conversation. So how can you justify that? That's just how much I love The Exorcist. Okay, well there are we know there how are wrong five that is. really good choices in this poll. You really can't go wrong with any of those five. So if I haven't seen the conversation, and 2019 is going to be its 45th anniversary. How about a blind cow? A review? blind cow, blind spotting for you, sacred cow for me. Yes, let's do it. Well. People are clearly a fan of the film, so I think we should probably get it on the books. We also heard from Mike Haler, who says not only does the conversation stand shoulder to shoulder with the very best films of the 1970s, it also contains Gene Hackman's best performance, and it is every bit the masterpiece that Coppola's Godfather films are that bookend it. Aaron Crabtree also chimed in. All of these follow-up options are arguably better than the best picture winners that precede them. Certainly, broadcast news is better than Terms of Endearment, and The Revenant is better than Birdman. I think I agree with that. Oh, okay. And maybe even The Conversation, which is most definitely the best of this lot and one of the best films ever, is better than The Godfather. Sure. Dylan Dam in Lincoln, Nebraska says, I think that the conversation is the correct answer here. But to me, the choice has to be Jonathan Demme's follow up to The Silence of the Lambs, 1993's Philadelphia. A good other choice here, Josh. Unfortunately, the film is as relevant today as it was when it was released, if not more so. Demme masterfully handled what was undoubtedly a difficult subject to tackle at the time and did so with grace and respect while still being clear and forceful about the prejudices that existed in America at that time. On top of that, you have a pairing of two of the great actors of our time, Denzel and Hanks. Derek Carter agrees. I'd put Philadelphia on this list ahead of the talented Mr. Ripley or even Zero Dark Thirty. It was Demi attempting to atone for an unintentional injury to the LGBT community for adding to the history of transgender people being portrayed as villains and freaks with the Buffalo Bill character in Silence of the Lambs. And it has an underappreciated performance from Denzel representing the public view of the AIDS epidemic and the people suffering from it. It is a very good film. One I appreciated a lot more the second time I saw it here. Not too long ago upon the passing of Jonathan Demi when we shared our top five Demi moments. Moment shots. Yeah. yeah and I like think that. I definitely had a scene from Philadelphia in my top five. Finally, Brett from Newton, Mass says my other vote is for A Perfect World. Clint Eastwood's masterful 1993 follow up to Unforgiven. I consider it the best film of the 90s and it's in my personal top 10 of all time. Now, that's really hard. And I appreciate A Perfect World. But it's following Unforgiven, which is incredible. When I taught a high school film class, I would show it every year, and every year it would be the overall highest-rated film I showed, beating out things like Casablanca, Jaws, Dr. Strangelove, On the Waterfront, and others. That's interesting that it resonates that much with high school film class. Yeah, I remember really loving A Perfect World, have not seen it since. No, and I don't think I've ever seen it. I will say, in fairness to it, as I compare it to Unforgiven, I don't think I've ever seen A Perfect World in one sitting. It's one of those HBO movies that seem to be on a lot, and I feel like I've 
digested the whole film, but never really given it its due. Thank you to everyone who shared their insightful comments. That brings us to our new poll question. We're looking ahead a couple of weeks to Alfonso Coron's Roma. After a decade plus working in sci-fi and fantasy, he returns to realism and his native Mexico for a film that chronicles a year in the life of a middle-class Mexico City family in the early 1970s. The early reviews from Roma's festival run have been ecstatic. It does have a 96 on Metacritic right now, and it's coming out in limited release before coming to Netflix on December 14th. I think December 6th is the date it opens here in Chicago, and this all leads us to a pretty pedestrian, probably, poll question. Here it is, nevertheless. What is Alfonso Cuaron's best film? And we are excluding Roma. So that leaves these options for you. Children of Men, Gravity, The Prisoner of Azkaban, and E2 Mama Tambien. We will give you the other options. So you could go with Great Expectations, A Little Princess, or perhaps even his Spanish language debut, which is the only one of his I haven't seen. I wish it wasn't such a busy time of year because I'd love to to become a Quran completist. But out of those, Adam, I don't know. Do you have an obvious answer here where you'd go? Well, speaking of pedestrian, I think I'm going to go with the favorite here. And in fact, based on what I've heard, I haven't looked at the results yet, but I've heard it's running away with it, as you would expect. And that's Children of Men. Yeah. I like all of those films that are in contention, actually, especially Itumama Tambien. That would probably be my second choice. I'm with you. But Children of Men. Something about the filmmaking prowess mm. in that movie puts it over the top for me. Me as well. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. You got everything to lose. This guy's got nothing to lose. I ain't got a choice. That's the same thing your father said, and he died right here in my hands. Listen to me, this guy is dangerous. But you don't think I could beat him? That's Michael B. Jordan reprising his role as Adonis Creed with Sylvester Stallone in Creed II. It's the new one directed not by Ryan Coogler, but by newcomer Stephen Capel Jr. Now, Adam, is someone who believes that Rocky Balboa is the best Rocky film. Yeah, I know. I do like Creed as well, quite a bit. Yeah. The first Creed. I'm a big fan. Um, I have no Rocky credibility on this show. None. So I, But I, that's a good film. It is. Yeah, I agree. It's a good film. People like it. People like it. It's just not the best. Well, okay. (laughs) Whatever you say. People don't want to generally hear what I have to say about Rocky. I only tend to anger them. So I'm going to hand it over to you and ask how your Thanksgiving experience with Creed 2 went. Yeah, I took my uncle to see Creed 2 and we both really liked it. I think if I saw correctly, Josh, it did pretty well at the box office this past weekend. Generally favorable reviews. I think it's an 81 or something on Rotten Tomatoes. I have seen comments, though, about it being just on Twitter, about it being a little long and a little slow. And my response to that is, yes, exactly. That's actually why I like it so much. It is beholden to certain sports movie beats and to some Rocky movie beats and homages that do hurt the film. There are a lot of references, not just to Rocky Four, of course. This is, in a lot of ways, a sequel directly to Rocky Four, as we do revisit Ivan Drago, played by Dolph Lundgren, now older, now training his son, Victor, and the whole film is about Victor, the son of the man who killed Apollo Creed, fighting 
Apollo's son, Adonis, and him trying to get his own little measure of revenge. There are also some pretty direct references to Rocky two and three. And unfortunately, they don't find a way to come up with a new training montage that are usually so good in these movies here when Adonis has to get ready for his big fight. Capel, as a director, decides not to just directly rip off what Stallone did with Rocky and Rocky Four, and have him go to Russia and train old school with no natural boxing equipment. Of course, the famous montages of him running up the mountains and doing all those things. Instead, they send him off to the desert for some reason, where there are a bunch of really scary-looking guys training the and sparring with each other. The Philadelphian desert. Yeah, I think it's the Philadelphian desert. Exactly, Josh. It doesn't make any sense, and it's not satisfying at all. But this is a film, refreshingly, less concerned with trite triumphs than it is with fractured men forced to confront who they perceive themselves to be or who they aspire to be versus who they actually are and the fight to reconcile that. There are all kinds of examples in this film of characters chasing ghosts, whether they're actual ghosts like Apollo Creed and living in the shadow of him or just the ghosts of these characters' former selves. And I found that all very compelling. We mentioned Stephen Cable Jr. He has done some TV work. He's made some shorts and one feature, The Land in 2016, a drama which I have not seen. He really has a strong visual sense. He's more subtle than Kugler, not as flashy, but he definitely has an eye and he gives everything, I guess, a real sense of grandeur. And he really takes his time with the framing and gives it really, for lack of a better word, a stateliness. He gives this a sense of importance that I think the movie does earn. And I'll tell you one of the bold choices he makes. This movie opens with the Dragos, Dolph Lundgren and Florian Muntanu. What's his nickname? I should just use that instead. Big Nasty. Big Nasty. Okay, that's easier to say. It opens on them and this really unglamorous life of the failed boxer, of course, who lost to Rocky in Rocky IV, now lives in disgrace with his son. They're barely getting by, and the son is fighting with an eye on reclaiming the Drago name and restoring some pride to their family. This sequence really easily could have been used by Capel just to set up the formidable threat that Victor Drago is, getting us ready for the eventual showdown. Let's just watch him decimate some other boxers. And this all comes even before we see the Creed II title. We haven't seen Adonis Creed yet in this film, but what's so effective about it is it really establishes the threat that Victor Drago is because of what's at stake for him as a fighter. And then we, as viewers, have a stake in that as well. I think Big Nasty is particularly good. He does a lot with a little as Victor Drago. He's mostly just a physical presence, but through that physicality actually does convey his entire psychology. I wish he and Lundgren both were given more to do. In this film, there's a scene with Lundgren and Stallone where they meet in Rocky's restaurant. And it really left me wanting more because there was something legitimately thrilling in the interaction of these old adversaries, but also in seeing these two actors as kind of mirror images of each other reflecting back on each other and the men that they once were and the guy who won and the guy who lost and feels like his entire life has been ruined because of losing. But they both are men who aren't at peace and aren't really happy. And yet it just doesn't really crackle the way that scene should. But there's a lot of father and son and father child, I should say, stuff that worked for me in this film. And Michael B. Jordan, very good, as you'd expect. Tessa Thompson returns as Bianca, his girlfriend, and Felicia Rashad, great as 
Marianne Creed, Adonis's mother. So there's a lot for me to recommend with Creed 2. I probably do put it behind the first Creed, but as far as a Rocky movie goes, and actually just as far as a movie goes, it's a good one. Well, given that Creed 2 was such a success at the box office, you should have no trouble finding it at a local theater. If you do check it out, let us know what you thought. You can email us at feedback at filmspotting.net. Some audio there from the trailer for Burning, Stephen Yun, Yu Ain, and Chun Jan Seo. It's the latest from Korea's Lee Chong Dong. It was a Palm d'Or nominee earlier this year at Cannes, where it had its debut. Chong Dong, the director of six feature films, including 2007's Secret Sunshine, which was part of our 2013 Korean Auteurs Marathon and 2010's Poetry. It is his first film in eight years, and I want to spend a little bit of time on it here. Josh, I'm curious if you think it was worth the wait, but also looking at the material itself, it's based on a short story by Haruki Murakami, the famous Japanese author, and there are a lot of different elements that we could discuss. There's the love triangle aspect to the film. The protagonist here, Lee Chun-su, meets someone from his childhood, Shin Haimi, and they develop a relationship. I think we can characterize it that way. But then a new character is introduced into the mix, and that's Stephen Yun as Ben, who comes from a completely different class than the other two characters. There is that class drama element to the film, and also it really slowly but intensely becomes a psychological thriller. So which one of those elements intrigued you the most? Oh, man, I loved them all. I mean, this is a really strong film and is definitely in contention for my top 10. At this point, you mentioned um, two of the cultural layers going on here, right, with um, it being based on the work of a Japanese novelist, yet being filtered through a South Korean filmmaker. And also, how about the fact that Chun Su, the lead character, is an aspiring novelist who admires Western writers, Mm -hmm. including... The Great Gatsby. He brings up a couple of times, uh, specifically in reference to the character of Ben, played by Stephen Yun, who has he's a bit of a sophisticate. He's a couple of years older than Chun Su and Jaime, and he's inexplicably wealthy. Whereas they're both kind of throwing together side jobs in the retail market. Um, he just has all this money and all of these things and doesn't really explain where they come from. And Chun Su makes an observation at one point that, you know, he reminds him of Jay Gatsby and that there are a lot of Gatsby's in Korea right now. And I think that gets at what this movie really does well is that it's a very specific character portrait of this one young man, Chun Su, and his loneliness and his feeling at a loss in this society, but also a generational portrait of um, youth, people in their 20s in the Korea that we see here, which is depicted as driven by commerce, driven by consumption. Um, again, Chun Su's side job is um, we see him when we first see him, he's delivering jackets, you know, um, to a store. That's where he meets Jaime, and she's she's like a sales dancer. She stands out front of these shops and shimmies away trying to get people to come in. Um, so they're both swimming in this consumerist 
society. And it was really interesting to have watched this film just within a few days of Black Friday and Cyber Monday and all this stuff. And and I'm not saying this from the mountaintop. I mean, I was online buying Christmas presents too. But this movie very much captured what is also a pervasive element of American culture, this consumerism, Mm -hmm. and specifically asks, what does that mean for youth who are trying to figure out their own identities in a world that seems to be defined by by the next big sale? Mm-hmm. And then the wrench thrown into that is what if you add a third character who seems to have achieved according to those goals and what's being held up in that society, but they don't know how or why. Um, so it, it's really something, you know, I don't, I'm obviously from the outside. I don't know how accurate this is um, for what it's like to be growing up in Korea right now, but at, at least it presented a very fascinating portrait of, of what that might be like if that's the situation, um, while still really rooting us in three people that you want to know more about. So yeah. it, it's a pretty impressive achievement. It's a really impressive achievement. I think that's all really well said. And all I kept thinking about watching this movie as more and more layers <laughs> unfolded yeah. was what a mystery human behavior is. That really seems to be at the core of what Lee Chang Dong is trying to express. And maybe that sounds a little simplistic the way I put it, but there's nothing simple about this movie or its characterizations. There's nothing absurd about it either, despite all of those layers. It really does feel like it's grounded in the everyday mysteries of life. And there are so many of them in this film that you could point to. And I'm not even thinking about some of the plot elements, but just the way we discover Chun Su's father and his behavior and his personality being someone who has apparently this rage kind of bottled within him. We never really do get more of a story behind that. But that's always lingering there. And it's potentially lingering as something that maybe his son inherited. The whole enigma of the cat that Jaime, her character, has Chun Su come to her house to take care of, but he never actually sees the cat. And of course, all the circumstances surrounding Jaime and what happens to her, there are many more we could point to. And I think one of the most fascinating mysteries for me does surround the Ben character played by Stephen Yun. And maybe we can't really get into this without going into spoiler territory, but he seems instantly unlikable. And we could point to a lot of reasons as this Gatsby-like character that he is unlikable. smarmy, maybe. Yeah, smarmy. That's a good way to put it. But he's also undeniably magnetic. And we see that in the way the Chun Su character is also drawn to him, as is Jaime. And I think we could really devote a lot of time and attention to how we're supposed to feel about him and exactly what role in this whole mysterious triangle he is playing. At one point, he is asked, I think by Chun Su, he's asked what he does for a living. And he just says he plays. Mm-hmm. And as the movie does unfold, we get a sense of what that might actually mean. I think one of the Real elusive questions here is whether or not the people he plays with, the playing he does, is with women like Jaime, or it's actually more with men like Chun Su. Because there's a lot of moments in this film where we see the three of them together, and we see how he's always watching Chun Su more than anyone. He's watching him, how he reacts to whatever scene is playing out. She's kind of a given. 
for him is yeah. how I how I take that. Um, and Chun Su is something more also maybe a mystery from Ben's perspective. You know, uh, I think mystery is the right word. Enigmatic, elusive. These are all terms you could apply to burning and very much in a good way. And it definitely builds towards that. It's, it's about halfway in. You realize you are in this mystery that you've been in all along, but it wasn't quite as obvious uh, until it kind of grows that way. And Yun gives a great performance as yeah. Ben because um, I think he's meant to be symbolic in a lot of ways, but he's still always a real person. And he's also a person who keeps shifting in your perception, as you've described, yet he feels wholly unto himself, if that makes any sense. We've done some sure. debating recently about performances and and what's consistency. What does that mean for a performance and still allowing a character to grow? And I think this is a good example of of Ben being someone you never quite get a handle on, but that's a good thing because no. you're not supposed to. No. Um, and so it is really, really a strong performance. All three of them are in the film. And I do like how the filmmaking as well slowly takes on this sense of elusiveness that the story and the narrative mm-hmm. and the themes do too. There's a very distinct shift about halfway through where the three of them are at Chun Su's family farm. They've shared a joint, it's sunset, and um, Jaime describes this as maybe my best day ever. And to kind of capture that, she does this interpretive dance in silhouette, uh, extended sequence, absolutely gorgeous and mesmerizing, and also a stepping stone into almost another movie where they all start to become mm. shadowy characters. And maybe it's just in my memory, but it seems like we get more shadow imagery after that point mm. here and there, uh, a few other uses of silhouette, and um, they almost become ghosts after that point. And it's it's may sound frustrating because you want answers and you want to know them better towards the end. But in a way, I almost knew less about them as individuals, but I understood more about this predicament they were in, in trying to find identity. Yeah, that's what they're after. And it's just always out of their grasp. Everything about this film seems to elude their grasp. And there just seems to be this uncertainty We're taking us back to the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, actually. In Mm -hmm. some ways, I do see the movie as connected because I talked a lot about that need for connection between characters. And that seems to be what these three in their own different way, whatever is motivating them, are after and yet unable to attain. I thought a lot about, actually, along those lines of Antonioni and his films about alienation from the 60s, those great Italian movies starring Alain Delon and Monica Vitti, where they spend a lot of time looking at structures, looking out at this vastness and kind of the order of everything, and yet nothing about it makes any sense. And we get a lot of those shots here of Chun Su looking out the window and seeing some of these structures and getting that just overall sense of disconnection from modern society. Often he's looking out the window of her apartment exactly. when he comes to take care of this cat, and, and that just doubles down on the sense of loneliness, that there's here's this person he's trying to make a connection with, but but she's not there. And, and um, yeah, the it's it's really an acute depiction of loneliness. Mm-hmm. It is. And you're right that the standout visual sequence in this movie, there's another kind of bravura moment at the very end of the film. But that amazing silhouette at sunset that we get, that interpretive dance, really is stunning. And I have a little bit more to say about it just in terms of what I think actually really heightens that moment, the use of music and Miles Davis actually yeah. is there on the soundtrack and how... Lee Chang Dong employs it. I think the key part of that scene for me, and 
I may end up repeating some of this perhaps at our 2018 rap party yeah, because this scene is definitely a contender <laughs> for best music moment. But I think the key really is when the music stops and how Changdong decides to let that scene still play out for what feels like an eternity, but it's probably only another 10 seconds or so. But the way that music seems to suggest a kind of profundity, maybe this kind of transcendent moment that character is having. And then by having the music stop, it undercuts right. all of that. Yep. It takes us back completely to reality and that the fantasy is over. Burning is currently playing in limited release, including here in Chicago. And that's our show. If you want some more, go over to filmspotting.net where you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. Over at the website, you can also vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking, what is Alfonso Cuaron's best film? And if you haven't already, please do check out the next picture show. It's our sister podcast. You can get it wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're looking for some Christmas gift ideas, how about you head to filmspotting.net slash shop where you can find film spotting t-shirts and all other sorts of merch. On social media, you can find us as Film Spotting. That's Adam on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Larson on Film. And going into its second month, I believe, Adam, is the Film Spotting newsletter. If you going want to strong. sign up, still going strong. Sam is hard at work on He's it. He's only complaining about three times a week Yeah, about well, the workload. Hey, he did it to himself. We warned him. <laughs> if you want to reward Sam for all his hard work, please sign up. Filmspotting.net slash episodes out in wide release this weekend the possession of hannah grace when a cop who is just out of rehab takes the graveyard shift in a city hospital morgue she faces a series of bizarre violent events caused by an evil entity in one of the corpses you know that happens in limited release including here in chicago burning which yes we do highly recommend and the favorite the latest from yorgos lanthimos it stars emma stone and rachel weiss next week on the show it is our plan to review the favorite along with vox lux starring natalie Portman. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is the Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. We'd also like to thank the Communication Arts Department at Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois, which provided the recording space for this episode. Learn more at TRNTY edu and go trolls if you enjoyed this show give us a rating or a review on apple podcasts that way we can reach some new listeners our music this week of course it came from the ballad of buster scruggs for film spotting i'm josh larson and i'm adam kempinar thanks for listening this conversation can serve no purpose anymore goodbye Three, two, one. Milk no, no country. Caesar. True oh, grit. No. I thought go. we would do it. You thought we'd do it that fast? It's a shootout. Right. You're going to do a slow shootout? Like a shootout. You would not. Quickly. You would not last no, five minutes in the old west. Adam. For some reason, I thought it'd be like us taking shots at each other. Yeah. Well, that's one. That's one version. Okay. Let's. Let's. Uh, I'll do it again. You do three, two, one. Wait. What are we doing now? Simultaneous. Simultaneous. Okay. Three, two, one. No country. Millers. Fargo. No country. Lewin Davis. Caesar. Arizona. True Fink. Fargo. So who won? <laughs> There's no winning. We just think the other one's crazy. <laughs>
Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.